welcome, Legionaries, to episode 29 of Legion Cast. Today we are going to be talking about the Age of Darkness book. It's a collection of short stories, but before we get into that, I am your host, Warwick, and joining me are my co-hosts, Paul. How's it going, guys? Back for another one. And my brother, Maniple. Greetings, Longbeards. Remember that in times such as these, even the most trusted face can conceal an enemy. And finally, who's made time in his busy schedule to join us, is my co-host Brandon. Thanks for coming back. Welcome, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me, those of us in this hobby who have a family to support as well, unlike anyone else on this panel. Welcome to Legion cast. Excuses. It's great to be back. Um, Life has been very, very busy for me, uh, but I have been able to get some time to, uh, you know, do some hobbying and uh, as well as get into this book. And I'm excited to, uh, to go through all of it. Right on. Before we get into any of that, let's talk about our hobby news and what's been kind of getting out there into the, the news sphere. We've got a new book to talk about, some new models to talk about, some rebrandings to talk about. Yeah, it's actually pretty funny. We were kind of talking about this beforehand, but last episode we were kind of throwing out a lot of ideas on how things would work and um, ideas for the Mark III kits and stuff. And then like two days later, we get all the Nova reveals and sounds like we were close to the mark on a lot of it. Yeah, especially with our discussion about the Monopose models, it appears that the new Mark III kit is just a reskinned Mark VI kit, which I, I'm kind of okay with. I don't really mind, but uh, how do you guys feel about it? Well, that was a question about how they were going to get all these weapon kits to fit. Um, So now you might have a Mark VI hand on your Mark III armor, but at least all those kits we invested in will be made use of. So I'm okay with that. Uh, Before we jump too far into this conversation, though, uh, what's on you guys' hobby table? What's everybody working on? Well, we started a tank challenge, and I've got this was a really busy week for me, uh, but I did bring up my... um, well, I've got all the armor I need to finish off. I think as I look at it, my Kratos is only about half painted with my base color. So I'm going to get that knocked out this week as best I can. That's currently what's on my table. Looking forward to finishing up that model. Yeah, I mean, technically for the tank thing, I've been doing a Xiphon Interceptor that I bought a while back. I'm trying to get that all put together and painted before uh, work comes down here for his games in a few weeks. But I'll admit it's been delayed by a little thing called Baldur's Gate 3. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I think we've all been a bit delayed in our hobby due to Baldur's Gate 3. Um, I know most of us are doing multiple playthroughs of that and having a real good time. Um, Paul, I know you got a Spartan there. Um, I'm sure that for the tank challenge, you could knock that out, make it look really nice so that I can blow it up on turn one again. Yeah. Uh, but now I am in the spirit of the tank challenge. I have my Typhon, which is sitting primed right next to my Spartan that is also primed. So I'll be looking to knock those out. But also in the spirit of tanks and popping them, I am also currently, as we're recording this, building a 10-man LAS cannon squad. Because, you know, I'm very original when it comes to picking my units. Warwick, what about you? What's on your hobby table? So I have been working on a Sakaran as well as a Cerberus. 
as well as my 10-man Fulmentaris Terminator squad, and as well as the two Forge World Ultramarine Praetor models that I'm pretty happy with. And then on top of that, I actually... I actually committed to painting like 15 Battletech clan mechs for one of my buddies here in town because he's running an event, I think, in Sioux Falls at the end of the month. So I said I'd, and it's a super simple paint scheme, so it's not like I'm committing to a ton, but, you know, I'll be able to knock them out real quick and feel pretty good about that. And I do like painting their, their little mechs, but I'm almost done with the Cerberus. The, I'm still working on getting parts together for the Fulmentaris. I've been having to print the missile packs for those, but I'm almost done with that. They're looking pretty good. I'm happy with that. And then they should be somewhat easy to paint. Maybe I'll end up finishing them up when I'm down there visiting you guys. So you might want to mention that you got a new printer. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Right. So my it hasn't shown up yet, but I'm trying to kind of limp through the last couple of prints with my uh, original Mars uh, Elegu Mars printer, and I keep getting misprints in the same location, and I've tried recalibrating it. I've swapped out the the screen on the VAT, and I've done all sorts of other stuff, and it just, I cannot get it to print consistently, so it's getting replaced. And then at the same time, the wash and cure station, the Magnister for the wash station doesn't spin anymore, or it doesn't spin inside the wash tank. So it's getting replaced, and then there's a hitch in the bearing for that, so when you put it into the cure station mode, it will throw stuff off of the cure plate. So it's getting replaced as well. And I think um, Paul says that he's going to take a crack at trying to figure it out, so next time I'm down in Dallas, he'll be getting a pre-owned, several times pre-owned 3D printer for me. Well, I figured everyone else is jumping on the bad wagon. It's my turn to actually give it a spin, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah, in typical Warwick fashion, um, I got this Typhon, and I'm like, look at this, it looks super cool. And he's like, let me go get the exact thing to destroy that for our games, and went out and immediately bought a Cerberus. I was thinking about getting three or four Predators, if I'm being honest. Actually, I think I would have preferred the three to four Predators. Well, I mean, it's it's pretty light on the Lord of War end of things. It's kind of on the lighter end of that, but... Uh, not like I'm trying to bring a Warlord Titan down there or anything. What are you guys planning for your games down there? Are you, do you have a, a schedule for your what you're going to try to get done in how many days? As far as planning for our games, I I don't know how how well planned it's going to be. We're definitely going to do a couple of uh, a few three thousand point games as normal, and I've committed. I think we both committed to a six thousand point game at one point, which should be easy for us to. I mean, it was super easy for me to build a six thousand point list. Yeah, I think we're keeping it pretty loose. Um, I think the only real plans I personally have is um, I am going to be, the weekend after Warwick comes down, I'm going to be heading up to Kansas City for a taking a Ferex event, uh, which I'm really excited to do. So I'm going to be running some lists without any named characters and uh, maybe trying out their Ferexian Praetor system um, to see what I think of that and uh, kind of just going from there. But yeah, I think our plan is just to kind of keep it loose, you know, um, just roll some dice, have some fun, and nothing nothing too serious. Should we get into the news? Uh, let's see, we were talking about the Mark III guys. 
Yeah, so I think overall it looks like the kits are, I mean, they look pretty good, even at the the easy build, monopose kind of thing. Brandon did point out that the sculpts are functionally identical to the Mark VI ones in terms of posing, um, which probably is the reason why all of the like special weapons are going to be cross-compatible with each other is because they are going to have the exact same arm positions for a lot of it. Um, kind of going back to what we talked about last episode, I am wondering what they're going to do with like the heavy weapons that came with extra arms in the box, if they're going to come out with a Mark III arm upgrade, or if they're just going to leave it, we're not really sure. Well, you know, it's a really interesting thing. Um, you know, obviously, I was really sad to miss out on the conversation you guys had last episode about the mono pose versus the modular kits. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting to me that they actually really, what it seems like they did is they just took the same model that they already had in their slicer of, you know, however that may be and kind of layered over it to make Mark three armor. And it's an interesting concept. Um, I know there are some people who probably aren't going to like that. Um, I actually quite like it a lot. Uh, because to me that what they've, what we've proven is that the, the kit sells in Mark six. So this will give us less time in design and spinning up molds to get different armor marks in the, in the new scale and everything. So ideally this will lead to more models more quickly. Yeah, that's true. But I wonder how many marks they can get get away with with that if they do that also for another one and it really becomes obvious that these are all the same will people re rebel against that i don't know i think there's enough variety in that mark six kit where it won't be immediate especially since the old days of the plastic marines and even pewter you were dealing with only a couple of poses so that's probably okay yeah and i mean as far as will they do it with more marks, I think Mark III probably would have been the most difficult to do it with because it's kind of got the most bulk to it. You got to add the most. Mark IV, really, you could do the Mark VI kit and just change the look of it. Yeah, they are pretty similar. I think the only thing that's majorly different is the like grooved feet in Mark VI and the helmets. There's a couple other little things you could change, but it's pretty similar. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be an expert on how 3d design works, but I imagine that changing those small things versus, you know, all the plates and rivets and all of that stuff that they had to add to the Mark three, I imagine that's that that would be easier. One thing I'm thinking about is it's going to see more homogenized armies on the table. Now. I mean, we've kind of seen that with 2.0 where everyone's running the Mark six stuff. Um, you're not going to see the old quote-unquote Mark V heresy armor, which is supposed to be an amalgamation of the other Marks together, unless they like print a dedicated Mark V kit. You're not going to be able to do that with these anymore. Uh, to, to an extent, actually, I, I kind of disagree with you there, because since they're all built off the same sculpt, you can swap out an arm, you can swap out... I mean, legs would be a little bit harder, although there are some legs that do come off i i would be wouldn't be surprised if you can actually get a fair bit of back and forth between these kits obviously we'll have to wait until the mark three comes out to see if that's possible but i think that in having the same sculpt for all the different armor marks 
there's actually maybe an opportunity that people aren't necessarily seeing right off the bat to do that kind of mixed up armor kit. Um, and then also, I don't know about you guys, but to me, a head swap and some shoulder pads can get you 90% of the way there. Yeah, that's true. It'd be interesting to see how creative people can get with these kits. So I'm okay with it. I mean, I'm okay with it for like maybe two or three of the different marks. If they're going to be doing all the marks, which I doubt they will do, I would like to see a little bit of variety so they're not reskinning the same sculpt every time. Maybe if they split the kits up like they did two or three of the same pose, um, two or three of the same skin, I should say. And then when they go on and start doing like, if they do like a Mark II, a Mark V, uh, and a Mark IV kit, if those are different uh, on a different plan. Uh, well, and when the when the Assault Marines come out, are those all just going to be Mark VI, or will they do the same thing where they've got an Assault Marine kit or a Breacher kit? Maybe those will be the same kit, you know? Um, who knows? And will they will they pull the same trick with each with each mark? It'd be cool to have a bunch of Mark Three Assault Marines. Well, we know but, that we're getting Mark Six Assault Marines. They've said that. Uh, and again, the same same kind of deal, though. I'm pretty okay with it if we get the same poses on, but then get more armor marks because, you know, at that point to me, it's really just season to taste. So if you want, if you really want a variety of an army, get a get a tactical squad of Mark Three, get a tactical squad of Mark Four, get a tactical squad of Mark Six, get your breachers in Mark Three or whatever, you know, and then you know, if we can get all of these ranges when they're finally coming out in all the armor marks, I don't think you're going to have people being like, oh, every army looks the same. Because maybe you go Mark 6 on your Assault Marines, and maybe I go Mark 4. And do they have the same pose? Sure, but they don't look the same. What did you guys think of the, the new Mark 3 kit having the spiked helmets? I'm cutting them off. I, I don't like them. Weird. You're weird. That's a little too... Um, and I, I understand, but that's just a little too German for me. Like, it's too World I War One for me, and I just don't like the, the aesthetic. I think I would leave them on certain um, legions, like the, the Death Guard. It kind of makes sense because later on they do have that single horn aesthetic in their in their mutations. But well, if I remember right, the Mark IV Forge World. Or no, it was the Mark III Forge World Death Guard helmets had the the spike on them. Yeah, so maybe for certain armies it works, but you know, for what I want to do, it yeah, yeah it probably not, would look funny on me. Dark Angels. But well, I I do plan to do Iron Warriors with these guys, and I still just don't think the spike yeah. works. I, I will say, in a, in a way, I am actually very sad to see that Mark III kit, the old one, go. Because, man, that was just such a great kit. It really was nice. Um, I really had zero issues with it whatsoever. Um, I know that they're trying to scale it up so all the scale kind of matches. It never bothered me. Yeah, so should we move on to the uh, the Dreadnought? They uh, showed, on, along with the Mark III, we have the... Deradeo, the Dorito Dreadnought, with Dorito Dreadnought, glory. Uh, have any of you guys ever played against this? I've I hear people talk about it online constantly, 
but I've never actually seen one on the table. I have not. Um, I've looked at them to put one into my army, and they seem pretty good. Um, especially, I mean, we all know tanks are in kind of a weird spot right now. Um, so getting that that heavy armor platform with some with some heavy anti anti armor stuff on it. Um, to me, it actually comes down to how good are they going to be at killing other dreadnoughts. Uh, that is a big question. And also, are they going to be able to upstage the greatest heavy support option in the line, which is 10 LAS cannons? I'm going to say that the answer to that is probably no. But it will be more fun. It'll look cooler. I love the look of those things. Yeah, I, I was about to... Dreadnought, but they've been resin, which has held me off from buying them. I was about to say, I'm really into the look of these things. I think they're really neat. Yeah. And you can run them in a, a talent of two, I believe. Yeah, like the yeah. Leviathans. Right. Yeah, I think they will definitely see better play than vehicles, just for the fact that they don't have the armor profile. Just being dreadnoughts. That, that, that's one of the big things with them, is just the high defense, high toughness. You're not worrying about vehicle charts. Well, let's be honest. They, yeah. they are better than vehicles. Um, as much as it pains me to say, they, they just are. Uh, the Leviathan was better than a tank every day of the week already. So now you have another heavy support option. This actually, if you guys want, would go with me on a tangent a bit. I know I talked with Warwick and uh, and Paul about this a bit, but Manipole, get your opinion. Fast attack really needs some love in this game. Fast attack is pretty bad. You either got flyers, which are going to get blown up as soon as they come on the board by an interceptor reaction, or stuff that just doesn't hold its weight on the field. Well, and there's so many easy ways to deal with light armor. Uh, you've got a, a five-man plasma squad, your your ten-man las cannon squad. Your even um, the heavy. So many tanks are festooned with heavy bolters. I think there's so many ways to deal with light armor because the firepower is so high in in 30k. I think they need. Do, do they get anything like a jink save or an invulnerable save for moving fast and that sort of thing? Not anymore, I don't think. Yeah, it seems like they need something like yeah. that in order to, to weather this. Um, the current battle. Well, and it's also with stuff like the bikes yeah, losing just... a toughness in this edition. Being toughness four on those jet bikes really hurts them a lot. I don't yeah, know I was... what the mentality was there, but it was a mistake. It's so hard to want to take anything there when chances are you've got a heavy support, elite, or troop option that does the exact same thing, probably. Yeah, I've been really struggling with it because a lot of the Sons of Horus stuff requires it. Like the Black Reaving Rite of War, you have to take more fast attack slots than you do heavy. So if you want to run two heavy slots, you have to take three fast attack options. And they're all so bad. <laughs> yeah, that's really rough. Yeah. So I've been working with, I think I've narrowed it down to Seekers, the Jet Bikes, and the, uh, the Xiphon. And they're not necessarily the best option, but out of what's in there, they're kind of the best option for what I need. They've been working out okay, but it just feels like a lot of points going into stuff that won't perform the way I want them to. One thing I'll say with that is I remember in 3rd edition, there was a tactic of just running a lot of small units. 
and just giving your opponent so much stuff to shoot at that by the end of the game they couldn't physically physically get that much you know that much stuff dead when the bikes were were higher toughness i think that was an easier tactic with the four that might not work at all but if you just swamp your enemy with units and duck from cover to cover it's potential that you could earn enough points in those first two rounds that even if he wipes most of your army you could still win um, so you have to play a, a much different game if you're going to be doing that, I think. And I don't think there's a particular right of war that favors fast attack, does it? Uh, Sons of Horus, Black Reaving, I think Raven Guard and White Scars have something, but I don't remember. I was going to say White Scars have to have something. I almost feel like Night Lords had something with fast attack specific, but I don't remember. But as far as like in the generic vein, you're not getting it because even in the generic rights of war, you have like uh, the the one where you get Terminators is line. Um, that is super handy. So if you had a generic right of war that made your jet bikes line, that would be a whole different ball game. But I, I just don't think we're going to see that. No, I think the mentality was they marked down the points on a lot of the fast attack. Like that Xiphon's only 105 points for a flying rhino with like six guns strapped to it or whatever it is so they're really cheap for what they do they just they don't quite perform because they have a lot of downsides the problem is that in most games that's going to be 105 points of pure dead weight because that thing is going to come on and get augury scannered right off yeah uh, so let's move on to the next thing, which is they announced that all this new stuff's coming in a box. Um, so it's going to be 30 Mark III Marines, our Dorito Dreadnought, and a Land Raider Proteus. So it's almost like a expansion box to the Age of Darkness box. What do you guys think of that? I love this box. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really neat. Uh, it's interesting because Breachers can take a Proteus as a, a dedicated transport. But like your regular line troops, like if you're just running them as tactical Marines, they're not going to get that unless you're running the Armored Spearhead Ride of War. Anyway, I think this is a precursor to us maybe finally getting that Breacher kit that we all want. Yeah, I'm happy they didn't try to double down on a yeah. new starter box and give us another Spartan. I'm glad this is more contained than that. It's a bit more reasonable. Yeah, I I think this is great. Um, I think you buy this box and the Age of Darkness box and a Primarch, and you're functionally done uh, if you want to be. And I, I think that's awesome. I think one of the biggest issues with Heresy, even after all the plastic has been coming out, has been cost of entry. Um, so I think that you know, we haven't seen the price on this box, so they could come and just blow the price out of the water and then it'll be worthless. But, you know, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful. I, I think that this is going to be a, a really good thing for the game. I love the fact that there's a Proteus in this thing because, man, I, I have like four and I still don't feel like I have enough. I had a 40K player ask me on one of the Gilded servers I'm in what the kind of price point is to get into Heresy. And 40k is, or modern day 40k is a much smaller game apparently. But when I told him that like a 3,000 point list is, you know, four, five hundred dollars sometimes, like just starting off, he kind of was like, what the fuck? He was scared. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be interested to see how much this costs. Although 
the Heresy team, it seems their price points have been, well, at least by GW standards, pretty reasonable. All the kits have been pretty well priced, so I'm not too concerned about it. Yeah, I'm, I, I would agree, and that's why I'm not super worried and I'm pretty excited for the box. Anyway, let's before we get into the big Nova reveal, let's take a quick gander over to our tiny counterparts. Uh, Legi- what is the game called? It's Epic. Legions it's Epic. Imperialis. I'm just going to call it Epic. So, uh, Manipul, as our resident Epic expert that I'm deciding that right now. Do you do you want to uh, okay. run us through some of the new Epic news? Okay, let's pull it all up. So I think the last one we talked about was probably the artillery release. But we did get a um, <clears throat> two announcements for box sets. And if you go way back when Adeptus Titanicus was new, there were some really some pretty decent deals on Titan battle groups and Nighthouse battle groups. And those boxes are back with new artwork that I love with the Legion's Imperialis branding. They're probably going to have the smaller bases, which I'm not still not convinced. I got to see them in person to see if I like them or not, because I kind of want to base all my stuff on Titanicus bases, but we'll see. But that uh, Nighthouse battle group is going to give you um, six Quistorus, Quistorus Knights, four Serastus Knights, and two Acastus Knight Perfurians. And if you've not put those Perfurians together, they're big. They're almost the size of a, of a, of a Warhound. A really impressive model. And then the, the Titan battle group is, is, is something great just for Adeptus Titanicus or this game. You've got your Warlord, your Reaver, and two Warhounds. If you put one more of anything on that, you've got your choice of what kind of maniple you want to run in Titanicus. And this is going to give a ton of options for for legions. So uh, depending what the price set is, I, I think when it was released before, you basically got one of the small models for free. Like the you got one Warhound for free in that Titan battle group, and you got, I think, those um, uh, Questorus Knights uh, sprue them for free when it all broke down. So a pretty decent deal. Uh, if we get the same thing, I'll, I might, I'll probably buy another one of those boxes. Um, is that a, a buy for you guys, or do you think you have enough uh, Titans in your life already? Oh man, that's that's tough for me because I, I want to, but I only need one more Reaver Titan for my Lanascara list, and then I don't know if I'm going to expand that army or not. The Knights would be cool. I'm not big on running Knights, but I think they'd be awesome to have for, for both Legions and Titanicus. I wonder if they're going to do something with these like they used to do with the old fantasy stuff during the changeover where they put both the square and the round bases in, if they do the tall and the short ones in these, because the picture here shows them on the short Imperialis ones. So I wonder if they'll keep the, uh, the old bases in the kit. I don't know if I'd really buy these. The night household is the one that calls to me. You know, I'm kind of at the point Titan wise where when you have three warlords, you don't really need much else. Yeah, the box is going to be a pass for me, and that is nothing to do with it being like a bad deal or anything. It's a fantastic deal. Um, I just I got enough Titans. Um, what I'm really interested in when it eventually comes out is that plastic direwolf. Um, that's kind of the one thing that I don't have for my 
Adeptus Titanicus. And since I'm not really getting into Epic, um, I don't really need much else there. Yeah, and I think this is probably going to be one of those games where one or two of us buy it, and then if we're ever visiting, we'll play a game of it. Um, that box will probably be a buy for me, but I I think I'm at the point in my life where I am going to try to sell some of my old kits. The things that have been on my shelf for too long, I'm never going to get together because uh, I need to raise some funds for this. I mean, I have money, and that's not an issue, but I don't have space anymore. I've got to make some room before I get an, invest in another great big box set. I didn't think I'd ever hear you say something like that. I'm kind of well, I'm, I'm, I'm older now. I've, I've, I've become a long beard, and these are the sorts of practicalities that now inform your life, so... That's where we're at, boys. You're not selling models. You're buying space in your house <laughs> for more models. Yeah. So do we? Do we want to get into the next reveal? For for that for the same game, um, we also have the news about flyers for for legions. And just a note that the the flyers are going to be a, something that comes in and does damage. They can't otherwise interact much with the board. They, they're not going to hold objectives. They're not going to get stuck in melee. They're going to, maybe they'll have a dog fight up there. If your opponent is also bringing uh, an air flight, I kind of think it's going to be one of those rock, paper, scissors moments where I'm going to bring flyers and then my enemy, my enemy is going to get wrecked by, by a bunch of flyers. So the next game, he's going to bring a bunch of anti-air and then you don't bring anti-air and that's all wasted. And then back and forth, back and forth, Am I going to bring it? Am I not? And then if, if you can play that guessing game, you might have an advantage over your opponent, or you could be stuck with points you don't have, you've spent that you shouldn't have. Yeah, I know we're trying to move on to the next thing, but one thing I thought was interesting in this is they didn't address the Imper- uh, the flyer bases at all. It didn't mention if they're going... I'm assuming they're going to come out with some Imperialis short base for them to sit on, because the current ones are on hex bases, right? But I thought it was interesting they didn't address right. it at all. So for our next reveal, they have revealed a new book. And we're going to be getting the Exemplary Battles in the Age of Darkness. And it's going to give us a whole new set of scenarios to play, it looks like. And it's going to be, it's a, it looks very cool. And the cover is kind of its own reveal. I mean, we already knew it was coming down the line. Brandon, do you want to talk about that? Yes, um... GW, I'm a little disappointed in you. Uh, pour one out for the con on a jet bike. White Scars players everywhere. You can weep. I am joining you. Instead, we got Snaky Boy Phil- Fulgrim, which was the safe route, GW. That was the safe route. You're not edgy. Not exciting. I remember when we talked about this in the uh, the last big set of reveals episodes and they said a Primarch was coming. I, I said Demon Fulgrim is the safe bet. I don't want to go with the safe bet. GW went with the safe bet. Model looks great. Um, big ish, big miss on being resin. I think we should have just expected that because all the other 30k Primarchs are resin. Fair enough. Um, and I will say I have thoroughly enjoyed the tears of the 40k players when they said that this model will not be getting 40k rules keep giving me those tears they are delicious we have a better game i don't know what they're crying about they're probably going to get a plastic one in the next couple of years anyway yeah fair enough 
I am kind of curious as to the scale of the model. The uh, pictures, at least as far as I can tell, it's kind of hard to see what the size of him is going to be. He looks like a big boy. Yeah. It seems to be a pretty big base. So it, it almost looks like he's going to be roughly equivalent to the 40k Demon Primarchs. Maybe a little smaller, but it's pretty close. And also, I know me and Brandon talked about this, but I've been reading about Fulgrim in the lore for years now. I don't remember them ever mentioning wings. I remember snake body, forearms, but did they ever say wings in the books? Or is that just something I'm totally just old man momenting about? Yeah, I, that, that's an odd one, too, because already the, the other two already have wings, and I thought maybe they would do, go a different route with this, but will any demon Primarch at this point not have wings? You mean three, because Magnus Mortarion, Angron, and now Fulgrim all have wings. So I think right. you're right. I think you're onto something. I think there's not going to be a point where we see one without. I mean, are we ever going to see... Uh, Demon Primarch Lorgar? Uh, Lorgar, I would guess, would probably get wings. Per Rabo, I would actually be quite disappointed if he got wings. Yeah, Although, I gotta be honest, I'd be disappointed if Per Rabo wasn't actually a demon. I just want to... I was about to say the same thing. Yeah, I was gonna be disappointed if he was... If, like, if they... Uh, yeah, she GW, was I know you listened to the show because you went with the safe bet on Fulgrim, per me. I want giant obliterator Perturabo. That is how you will get me back into 40k. Now, um, fluff wise, uh, when we left Fulgrim at the end of his of the book that we went through of the same name, he was still just looking like a regular Primarch. At what point did he get the tail and wings and all that? So that comes in in Angel Exterminatus. That's a book. Yeah, we're not there as far as like our our show, right? And. Technically, at the end of Fulgrim, that's not Fulgrim. That is Possessed Fulgrim. Yeah, he's got a whole right. journey to go on before he can even become a demon prince. I can't wait to talk about that short story. It is so screwed up. All right. Speaking of short stories, though, should we uh, take a short break and then jump into our book here? Yeah. Let's just make sure that I think we covered well, we all the we forgot the most important um, one, guys. The big drum roll. Well, the Arvis lighter is on pre-order. I'm sure everyone's excited. <laughs> Yay. I looked up the rules for that, and I couldn't figure out why it was so, like, great. Why do people want it so much? It can hold, it, like... It, it can move 12-man squads for the Solar Auxilia. Don't they come in blocks of, like, 30? Well, yeah, but you can, do, you can do 12. You can take, like... The and it elite, doesn't have like, any guns. Skin guys in like 12 man squads can instead it, of like nine i think is what you could take in a lot of the other flyers yeah i think we're for are. christmas week we're gonna do the arvis lighter challenge we <laughs> each buy an arvis lighter for each other and paint it up. <laughs> here's yeah. the stupid model you're not gonna use anyway we'll see you guys soon Welcome back, Legionaries. We're going to be talking about Age of Darkness now, a collection of short stories that are kind of spread about uh, the post-Istvan era and getting into things like Imperium Secundus, 
getting into what happened to some of the leftover salamanders and the raven guard and so forth. Uh, without much preamble, we'll just get into it. I'll be handling the first story, Rules of Engagement. This kind of <clears throat> recaps what is going on at the outset of Imperium Secundus, and we're greeted at the beginning by this kind of um, stressed-out Gilliman who's not really sure or confident that he's taking this in the right direction. And very quickly after that, we're thrown into this battle scene where one of my favorite characters, Remus Fentarnus, is fighting the Death Guard across the... Uh, I can't remember what planet they're on. Anyway, it turns into the siege, and Remus is employing these very questionable tactics, and he's getting a lot of pushback from some of his subordinates and the other Ultramarines. They're not really sure what's going on here. And Throughout the story, Remus is basically saying, you know, we have to trust the Primarch. This is the Primarch's plan. And it all kind of unfolds later on down the line. Basically, the Ultramarines put together this... Can I just say that I think Questionable Tactics should be our boy band name. You think that would fly in the 31st millennium? Probably not. You think your big ass is going to be up there dancing on stage? You got another thing coming. Dude, I danced the fuck out of your wedding. Yeah, that, there was a lot of alcohol involved in that. <laughs> anyway. Well... In this first engagement, the Ultramarines put up this defensive wall very quickly, and the the main pushback on that is that they they didn't build it at the narrowest point of this valley. They built it at the very end where it was spread out too far, and they didn't have enough men to man it, basically. And they eventually get pushed back. Well, as it's revealed later on, they did that in such a way that the Death Guard were forced to spread out. So even though the Ultramarines retreated the Death Guard were spread out in such a way they were easier to pick off later on down the line. In our next engagement, they're actually fighting World Eaters. And this one's a little screwy. I'm not sure if I believe this would work because these several all-terrain outposts that are spread apart are being overrun by World Eaters. And they, you know, the, the normal tactic would be to fall back and re reinforce the next position. Well, Remus via Gilliman's writings, is saying, stand your ground, stand your ground. And eventually it just kind of comes to this cascade effect where the world leaders are so spread out that they're caught in overlapping fields of fire, and the Ultramarines are initially taking high casualties, but then towards the end, they're not really losing anybody at all, and the world leaders are just being decimated. And, you know, if, if you're kind of familiar with a lot of the world leader writing or their tactics, yeah, they charge in kind of willy-nilly. They don't tend to not have a lot of tactics. So it seems plausible that the World Eaters would fall into this kind of attack. The third one, they're fighting Renegade Salamanders, which really threw me off guard, and I thought was interesting. And it comes down to this scenario where Remus is, you know, charging uh, into this kill zone to try and eliminate the enemy leadership, and he's confronted with this land raider turning on its axis and disgorging a shitload of cataphracty terminators and it's so dire for a second he calls down broken arrow which if you know what that that is it's where you call down every available uh piece of ordnance on your position and he fires this or he has his heavy weapons fire all their last cannons and crack missiles into these terminators while he's standing right on top of them risking his own life to kill the commander and this this part here is kind of what throws you... Well, there are a couple little hints in the beginning, 
but there's a part here where Remus says, how does it feel to die to one of these dying salamanders? And the salamander says, the same as when I was your brother. And that's like the first big hint. And then the, the last battle, they're actually battling the sons of Horus and they've gotten intelligence back that they think the war master is there. And this is another one that throws you off because as far as any of us know to this point, Horus never made it to Imperium Secundus to the realms of Ultramar. But at the very end of the story, you know, Remus is doing everything he can in regards to Gilliman's new strictures to their new tactics. And he is just getting his ass kicked left and right. And at the very end, he comes face to face with the War Master. And it's revealed that it was Gilliman the whole time. They've been running war games throughout this entire story. And this is the onset or the, the um, kind of the initial kind of playtesting of the Codex Astartes. And it references the tactical squads being divided up and given like specialty or heavy weapons. And they, they run smaller, so they're more flexible. So this is kind of a precursor to the inductee that I got, which I thought was really cool. And then the, the last bit of it is basically Remus and Gilliman having a back and forth. Gilliman saying, you know, maybe there's nothing you could have done, and I guess we'll never know. But if you had to, you know, add anything to to this scenario, what would you have done differently? And basically the only thing Remus can say is that we were outclassed because we didn't have our Primarch with us. You never fought by our sides during this engagement. And it basically boils down to Gilman saying, you know, all I can do at this point is hope that if Horace makes it this far, I'll still be here to contest with him. And we know on the tabletop that's very reflective that if you don't have a Primarch and your opponent does, you feel like you're at a big disadvantage, especially when you're staring down the barrel of somebody like the lion, who is just a threshing machine left and right. And, you know, Gilliman says at the end of the story, you know, I'm going to keep writing the codex and we're going to hope that if Horace does make it this far, I'll have a plan for it, but we'll see. And that, I, it's a very ultramarine story. I'll give you that. Um, the first couple engagements seem a little Mary Sue-ish, but that's just the, the way that the codex of Sturdies has always been portrayed through the entirety of the 40k writing. So I, I don't really know how you would change this story another way. It just is what it is. I think it's a fine story. One thing that stood out to me with it is it kind of reflects how the codex is going to be interpreted in 40k. Like at the end of the story, Gilliman talks about how this book is supposed to be like tactical guidelines and instruction, but should never be fully implemented at face value. There should always that was kind of the thing they talk about with why'd you lose to the sons of Horus? Well, because sometimes there are just tactics that you have to be able to adjust to on the fly that the book's not going to be able to cover. But the way Remus implements it throughout the story is very much like this is the Primarch's writings. We have to do it exactly as written. And that's the only way this will work kind of thing. And that kind of reflects how in 40k, the Ultramarines were operating. And when Gilliman comes back, he's very much like, guys, this wasn't the plan. What are you doing? So it's, it's like a little precursor to that. I thought that I was, I meant to mention that so that thanks for bringing that up. But Gilliman also says there's a parallel between the implementation of the Codex Astartes and the disbanding of the Ultima Segmentum before he goes and takes his dirt nap. So the, he should have instead of disbanding the Ultima Segmentum, he should have left it as kind of a running example of how the rest of the Imperium should operate. But because he disbanded it and put it all underneath the leadership of the 
um, Terran hegemony or whatever, uh, it never really functioned the way it was supposed to, the Imperium as a whole. So um, this does reveal something about space green uh, conditioning as well. I think, and we've mentioned this before, that in the 31st millennium, the space greens are kind of more free thinkers. Whereas by the time we get to the 41st millennium, they're, they're all conditioned to, to think and act the same way. They don't have the same character characteristics or individuality because of this model of the Codex Astartes, that they, they have to follow the rules all the time. And the only legions that don't, like the, the Space Wolves, for instance, they still kind of have that old 30K character to them. They're a big legion. They do what they want. They have a different style, that sort of thing. And the characters seem like individuals, whereas the other Space Marines are just kind of these guys in power armor. And that's all you see about them. My only issue with this story that I really have is where it occurs in the book order. This needs to come later. Um, They talk about things that have not happened yet. And if you are not a... If if you're still new to the series, you're sitting there going, the hell is Calf? You know? Right. So this should have been after uh, No, No Fear. And so it, the the location of the the location of the story book wise is in the wrong spot. You do jump forward because we haven't had Calfit, as Brandon said. But if you wait too long, you're dealing with the Shadow Crusade, which this is in between Calf and the Shadow Crusade. And something to note about that is this book is kind of the precursor to where the series is going to start spiraling out. Um, cause not only is rules of engagement in a weird spot in terms of where the book publishing timeline is going, but, uh, the next one is, uh, the face of treachery. That one's also set before the Raven guard book on Isvan five. It's literally the end of deliverance, which is two books away. So it's like spoiling what's going to happen almost, <laughs> but th- it, this book is kind of the start where we, the first couple books were about establishing the narrative. And then the next couple books were like establishing where the legions were and why they side on the sides they are. And this book from on is going to be where it's like, all right, we're just talking about the war. Now here's a bunch of stories. Here's a bunch of just random things happening. The timeline's going to jump around like, Oh, we're going to go back to Isfahan five for a book. And then we're going to go to later heresy. And so it's, from here on out, it's going to become kind of a mess to keep track of. Yeah, and I wonder if it would be worthwhile for us to sit down and, and kind of one of these pyroside chats to make the order books that you really ought to read them in if you're going to go historically. Because even as I'm looking at the list here in the front of the book, you know, Horus Rising, False Gods, Galaxy and Flames, those are really kind of the midpoint of a lot of these of the series. Um, there's so much stuff that happens before that. You could have a whole nother soul set of books of these that it's just books about the Great Crusade and Olinor and all that sort of stuff. And then you have the the Horus Rising right in the middle. And then you move on to post Isfahan and the Siege on the Imperial Palace. And remember that this series of books is happening over the course of hundreds of years, right? I think the heresy was like a decade, a couple of decades, maybe. Wait, but how long was that guy frozen in um, cold storage in the last book? So Hauser was in cold storage for 80 years, yeah. roughly 80 years. So he was, yeah, he was actually... The most, most of Prospero Burns happens all before the heresy. Oh, right. Yeah, well, I remember we had this discussion with Legion, and I know you guys talked about it with Descent of Angels, too. Both of those take place 
fairly far before um, the first three books. But yeah, it, those books were about establishing those legions and where they were and why they went the direction they did. Um, but Age of Darkness is more just like, here's a bunch of just stuff that happened. And I'm not even sure there's a way that we can line these books up that avoids the amount of sprawl that we're ending up with. Because the, the story has sprawled a little bit just with jumping back and forth, like with uh, Descent of Angels and Prospero Burns and all that. Um, even, I think, the Thousand Suns book is maybe 40 years before... I think they said it was 40 years before the sacking of Prospero. So it's just like trying to keep the timeline manageable in your own head is pretty rough. Well, I'm thinking that there, there's also a piece of this sort of missing where in White Dwarf there were articles and there was fluff and there were short stories and all that stuff going on as well. So if you were in the hobby at the time, there were various things coming out from Forge World. There were articles in White Dwarf. There were you know posts online. And so there's a whole milieu of other things going on in this, in this time these books are coming out as well. So yeah, because I, I remember as I was collecting these books originally, this was the point I started to feel overwhelmed. I'm like, I've got to find $7 for another book already? Wow, this is a lot of money. <laughs> of course, now the new ones are what? At least 10. Uh, the good old days. Well, should we move on to the next one? Liars do. I want to say it was a short story, but it, it wasn't. It was it was fairly long. And the the payoff, I don't think it was worth the whole, the, the length it took to get there. I suppose it's about 50 pages. Um, it starts off, you're just in this unimportant agri world. Uh, they're farmers. It does describe a little bit about, you know, life in the 41st or 31st millennium, but there wasn't a lot of anything weird. It just seemed like a farming world. It could have been just generic sci-fi farming world. And it's kind of low tech. Uh, you've got this boy and his name is Leon. Leon is kind of the, the lens through which you see the story. And the what's happening is that on the, the broadcasts that they're receiving from Terra or elsewhere, they're getting conflicting reports. Um, it starts off with this report that says that Horus has breached the Imperial Palace and the Emperor is now dead. So now give your loyalty to Horus and his and his his glorious legions. And so in the bars and the in the towns and stuff, people are now discussing back and forth. Well, should um, will war ever come here? Are we going to be in trouble? Uh, who should we side with? And it's this it's a little bit prescient because if you look at the modern politics anywhere in the world, you've got people going on and back and forth on these two different sides. Are you this or that? Are you pro? Are you against? What are you? And there's this deep suspicion now that that's being that's coming out in these people's lives. And so Leon meets this guy who he thinks is a remembrancer. And um, let's see, his name is Mentak, yeah, Mendax. And Mendax is, uh, you get the sense that he's not everything he's, he claims to be because you get this narrative where he has snuck on the planet and then he's just kind of presenting himself as a regular guy. You know, he's an Esquire and he's coming here to buy or sell or give news or something. Uh, but can you can fast forward through a lot of that. It's just all the suspicion and neighbor turning on neighbor and people deciding, are we going to, you know, pick up, are we going to defend ourselves against the, the enemy who's coming? And then something happens where they believe that there's an invasion. 
they're, they see the meteors falling from the sky and they think that it is drop pods coming in. And then they set up this town militia and then these people come running in on, on jet bikes and they open fire. And But it turns out that it was just a messenger from another village and they're just been shooting at each other. So it, it, there's no invasion force whatsoever. Well, Mendax, once this all kind of kicks off, he leaves. And this boy, Leon, he gets the, the strength of the courage up to go follow him. And he goes up on the Skyhook, which is this suborbital platform where they use to deliver cargo to planet to, to ships that are going to take them off off planet. He gets up there and finds out he's kind of witnessing what's going on here. Mendax is an agent of the Alpha Legion. And all he's doing is going to these backwater planets and sowing discord, getting people to hate and to distrust each other. And he's the one who's been doing all these broadcasts and filling their heads full of lies. And so he gets the astropath and says, hey, I need you to deliver this message for me or I'm going to blow your brains out. And the astropath does it and he blows her brains out anyway. And all it was, was he's sending a message to Horace's fleet, um, mission accomplished, on to the next one. Now, the the best part of the story was at the end where Leon confronts him. And Leon says, you're a liar. You, you caused all this death and destruction. I'm going to turn you in. I'm going to go back down to the people and say what you did. And he says, no, no, you're not. Because by the time he, they've already made up their minds that that they're which side they're going to go with, and whatever you say, they're not going to believe you, and you're just going to be siding with the enemy. And I'm not going to, I'm not even going to bother killing you, because by the time you get down to the planet, your family or your friend, they're the ones who are going to kill you. I don't even have to worry about it. So uh, I know you're smart enough to get out of here, have a great life, kid. And then he's off his ship and, and he's he's away. So it is really interesting where even when because he's saying that even if people are confronted by the truth, they won't believe it. They prefer to believe the lie and, and they'll kill in order to maintain the lie. I think this story does a good job of making you believe that a little bit of propaganda and subterfuge goes a long way. I, I actually really like this story. Um, I agree with you that it is a little too drawn out, but it gets to something we don't see very often, which is kind of this common man in the Imperium. Uh, it's not something you see every day or hardly at all. And what I really like, uh, one of the characters you didn't mention that I really like is actually Leon's dad, who, you know, Leon's getting like, oh, are we going to you know fight or, you know, we're going to stay with the Emperor? And he just looks at him and says, who freaking cares who runs the galaxy? It doesn't change a dang thing for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he's the smartest guy in the book. And if everybody listened to what he said, they wouldn't be killing each other. It was, it was... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and let's not forget that Leon is this kid with the high hopes of getting off this agri world and going and seeing Terra someday. And his dad is like, you have no idea how impossibly big the galaxy is. And for this, you know, dirt poor farm kid to get off this planet and go anywhere would be a miracle. So you need to focus on what's in front of you right now and, you know, just keep making it to the next day. And then uh, maybe you'll grow up and grow out of it. I don't know. Yeah. It's one of those things with, I, I know some people who get so worked up about politics or the things going on that they, they ignore the whole rest of their life. And I'll, I'll tell them, you've got to turn the television off for five minutes. Just go outside, do something else. This is, I know. Okay. It's important. Okay. 
who's ever in the White House or who's just in go Congress, touch grass. Just go touch go grass. Touch grass. Just do something else for a little bit, and you'll see that no one away cares about your life and and what you're doing. They really don't. Just go live your life and don't get so obsessed with this stuff. Um, and I wish that people, more people would would heed that message. And remember that the, the story was written in 2011, and we, we're seeing now everything he's talking about with the use of social media, how it can be used to manipulate opinions and people's thoughts about stuff. This is, has predicted the future. That's pretty amazing. Even though this book is uh, you know only 12 years old, it, it's showing what we're living now. Literally 1984. All right. Should we uh, jump to the next one, which is Forgotten Sons? Okay, I uh, said that I would take that one as well. Uh, this one uh, was surprisingly deep when it, when it came to the end here. You've got these two space marines, a salamander, whose name is Hecatan, and then you have a ultramarine who doesn't feel like an ultramarine at all, and his name is, is it, is it like Arcades or something? Arcades, yeah. Arcades. Yeah. There's a third character, Persephia. Persephia has been following around uh, Hecatan, and she was a an artificer. So she's kind of like a remembrancer, but now she's an artificer, and she's kind of learning how the salamanders do things. These yeah, guys are so both. She, she was a remembrancer, and then when they disbanded, they assigned her to be an armor artificer for. It was I think she was attached to Arcades. But then at the start of the story, Arcades is like, go help Hecatan with his armor. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Arcades doesn't seem like an ultramarine. He is, you can tell that there's something deeply wrong with this man. And you find out that they're both survivors of the Dropsite Massacre. Well, uh, sorry, Hecatan is. And Arcades is a survivor of Ulanor. And they had both been grievously wounded at these battles. And now they're, they're, they've been taken out of their deep freeze or wherever they've been in storage at to go to, to this planet called Bastion. In a Bastion, they're going to try to work as, as negotiators. So Bastion is this planet that has a lot of um, material wealth, and they can build these amazing machines, and, and they have a, and neither side wants to fight a battle with Bastion because they're gonna, the losses would be too great, and they wouldn't end up with what they wanted anyway. So the Horus has sent a delegation and the Imperium has sent a delegation and they're both going to give their arguments to the Senate and then the Senate will decide which side they're going to, they're going to go with. Now, uh, Hecatan and Arcades, they get shot down though. Their, their ship crashes out in the wasteland. They're able to save Persephia, but no one else from the small crew survives and they have to walk their, themselves into the, into the town. Now, um, they had the, the you guys. What do you guys? What do you, what do you guys want to talk about the Horus side? Like, who's the Horus guy? What you think of him? Yeah. So Horus actually sends an iterator to this planet, which was a big surprise because in Galaxy and Flames, he kills all the iterators and remembrancers within his fleet. So this must be some new cunning recruit that he's found along the way, and this guy. Uh, I can't remember for the life of me his name. Uh, Orton Vorkellen. Orton Vorkellen is his name. 
And, you know, he's this very well-spoken iterator type. And he compares himself at one point to Erebus. And I'm like, you're not doing much. Erebus had some really easy marks to manipulate. But, you know, um, you know, Vorkelin does a very good job of playing this, uh, you know, playing like kind of the benevolent uh, politician. More ambassador or less. kind of. Yeah. yeah, ambassador is a better word. And, you know, he he easily has the council kind of in his pocket. And, you know, he's he's your typical ambassador type. He, he's a very well-spoken guy. And he's really matched up against uh, a poor couple of opponents because uh, Arcades is very bitter because he doesn't recognize the world he's woken up to. And Hecatan isn't there for a lot of this trial or a um, hearing, basically. Well, and even for the whole story, Hecatan keeps having these flashbacks to Istvan. Where you know, and he's he's he had witnessed his Primarch getting destroyed, uh, get and I'm not going to say killed, but he was getting destroyed, and he um, he keeps having these flashbacks, and he'll just stop whatever he's doing, and then uh, kind of get back to real life, and you, you get the sense that that um, Arcades he is bitter that he wasn't able to actually be at the victory at Olinor, and Hecatan wants to be with the rest of his brothers who who died. He doesn't want to keep going on. So they're both very, very broken individuals. And neither of them really wants to be a ambassador. Well, one thing that bothered me about Arcades was that he was put in, or he was in a Sisan coma, which is if a space marine's wounded very horribly, their body goes into a healing coma, basically. And when he wakes up, he's got all these augmented limbs and parts, and he can't function like a normal space marine. My only beef with that part of the story is normally when that happens, they just put you in a dreadnought. But now you have a disabled space marine, I guess, which... Well, he had bionics, so he wasn't completely disabled. And most of the time when we see him in action, he doesn't have his armor on. So it could be once he's in armor, he could function just like every other space marine. Um, But anyway, during the investigation, Persephia goes missing or during the negotiations, Persephone goes missing. And so Hecatan goes to find her and he discovers her body. Well, what had happened here on the planet was that it had been, there was a group of um, iron warriors who had been on the planet as the kind of the custodians after it had become compliant. These iron warriors stayed there just to keep an eye on things. But then some time ago, they just up and left without a word. Well, you come to find out that they were up to some stuff on Bastion. They were working on some plans or some development projects, and they don't want to leave any evidence behind of what they were working on. So Hecatan goes in, and it's, it's pretty amazing that he's able to, because he, he, he finds this iron warrior who's down in the, in the basement in the reactor, deleting all the files of what they were up to. And the guy, how does this work? The the um the iron warrior has a chain sword but hecaton's able to disarm it the and hecaton does not have his armor on but the iron warrior does and they have this duel and you think well he's just going to kill hecaton there's no way that he can do this but you get the sense that the heat from the re- reactor is boosting hecaton because the the salamanders they live off heat and so they had the struggle. The, the Iron Warrior somehow drops his chainsword. He charges at 
Hecaton, Hecaton picks up the chainsword and then rams it through his guts and kills him. And you find out that this iron warrior had killed Persephia too. And again, we see this character who I, I liked. I would have liked to see more of Persephia. She seemed like a pretty interesting character, but now she's been eviscerated by this iron warrior. And Hecaton's able to discover just that these little, whatever he can find left of the plans that weren't deleted shows these horrific creations that the iron warriors have been working on. And he's like, Oh, this is, this is nasty. Whatever this is, it's terrible. And they also find out that the, the whole planet has been rigged to blow. There's this naturally occurring thermonuclear power source on planet and iron warriors are going to destroy the planet to cover their tracks. But then upstairs, up in the Senate hall, while Arcades is picking a fight with this um, with this old iterator, you get this. You, you find out that there's an assassin there. Do one of you guys want to talk about the assassin and what this is? Yeah. So it's uh, it's actually a, a weird thing from 40k. Yeah, Lacrimore, which is a xenos race an alien race that have like shape-shifting properties and apparently this guy is working for the war master and has been sent here to watch over the negotiations and assassinate somebody yeah and you're not quite sure who's with who because he does try to assassinate the um is it the governor that he's trying to assassinate or is it the iterator I think it was the governor. Um, but Arcades is able to jump in the way of the bullet. And Hecatan is up there and he he catches the assassin. But in the meantime, the whole place starts coming around, coming down around their ears. And the iterator says something like, you need to save me because we've both been betrayed. So he was there thinking he was truly going to negotiate for this planet. But then he finds out, no, someone else is here trying to destroy the whole thing. So now you get this fight between these two unarmored space marines and a lacrimal, and the lacrimal keeps changing his shape, but eventually they do get him. And it was pretty satisfying when Arcades finally gets his hands on this guy's head and just crushes it and squeezes his brains out. That was pretty gross. But sadly, Hecatan does not make it. Um, Hecatan is dangling over the, the fire uh, that's, that's underneath this, this building that's opened up. And Vorkelin needs to be rescued. And Arcades has to watch as Hecatan lets go of his grip and falls down into the, 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 the fire because he wants to join his brothers, which is, I thought, very poignant at the end. I thought, oh, that's, yeah, that's it's sad. it's a big bummer because I like Hecatan more than I like Arcades. Right. But if, I think this is a little bit of a, uh, so there's some symbolism going on here. Because you've got Hecatan, which symbolizes the old, uh, the, the old Imperium, who represents the goodness and the light and, you know, some hope in humanity, and it's been burned up in the fires of war. Now you've got Arcades, who's the Ultramarine, who's now marching to the future, with a gimpy leg, with a lot of bitterness, and, and looking to, and he can't look forward because he's stuck in the past. And now you've got the 41st millennium and kind of encapsulated in this ultramarine. So I thought that was a pretty good little back and forth that we got. Now, Arcades does come back in the, uh, the I think it's the Silent War uh, short stories. He shows up in one of those. And uh, 
but he does kind of walk off this story being like, you know, he, um, Hecatan might have died kind of this ignominious end, but I can make sure that, you know, the others don't. And I'm not sure that's where his story goes. Cause I think we only see him one more time. Yeah, I'm glad you guys got a lot out of the story because I I really didn't. Um, I I did not find it entertaining. I wasn't aware of the Lacrimore thing. I was like, this is just random alien that they inserted in there to make the plot drive forward. Yeah, I think the Lacrimore shows up in, is it um, Eisenhorn books? Um, or maybe it was in... God's Ghost, maybe? I know it's popped up in a couple of the Inquisitor short stories. I th- it was either Ravenor or Eisenhorn. I can't remember they had one. Yeah. Yeah, it's they've been featured in a lot of 40k stories, but I think this is the only time it's referenced in 30k that I can remember. What I wanted to see here, I wanted this assassin to be Spear. How much yeah. cooler would that have been? Yeah. If yeah. Spear showed up. I really liked how the the Iron Warriors garrison had the kind of contingent plan if this world ever revolted or if they couldn't hold it, they were just going to get rid of it. And so they had the basically the magma core set to melt down at any point. See, I didn't... Very Iron Warsy. It, it Iron didn't Warsy. really read that way to me. I was actually kind of confused as to the motivations for the, the heretic side. So it's like Horus sends this guy to negotiate for the planet he also sends an alien assassin to frame the Imperium for killing the governor and the agent he sends. And then the Iron Warriors also have a contingent to destroy the planet. And all three set off their plan at the same time. It's kind of like, yeah, are, are they not talking to each other? Like they so, clearly. So I think Horus sent the Iterator, the Alpha Legion sent the Lacrimal, and the Iron Warriors have their own their own agenda. But yeah, the idea that all three of these things happened at once was a little hard to believe. Yeah, well, it's also just, I don't think it's ever said really any of the motivations. I think at the end, they kind of like do this little throwaway line of like the Iron Warriors destroyed the planet as a um, as a show of force to other planets that would even dare to entreat with the Imperium kind of thing but it's like well then why send the envoy why send the assassin just blow up the planet to begin with what were you guys doing so i don't know well uh it's funny that you should mention spear maniple because they did reference the planet from the nemesis book uh where the assassination attempt was because that was part of the envoy's case as to why they shouldn't trust the imperium because you know they had this assassination attempt on horus and it led to this bloodshed on massive levels well, and I think he made an effective case for Horus, you know, that I could see where people would be swayed by that and said, you know, the Imperium's just full of blood, death, and betrayal, even for loyal citizens. So why would you want to, you know, be part of this? It's interesting. Yeah, I didn't feel that the Arcades did a good job at all as a negotiator, like from the get-go. Well, and I think that that was on purpose. Kind of the point, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean... It he doesn't do a good job, but also he does kind of frame what the Imperium really is all about. Is like you will be loyal. Yeah, we don't have to give you a reason. You will be loyal, and so Horus, being the disloyal one, is showing up and saying, "Here's all the reasons you should not be loyal." 
And so obviously that's a stronger argument because it actually comes with some reasoning behind it. But um, I, I think that's actually a really good segue into uh, our next book, The, the Last Remembrancer. Um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time summarizing the plot here because the plot's very straightforward. Um, and I want to get more into the discussion side of things uh, on this story because I really enjoyed this not for what was actually going on, but what it made you think about. Um, and basically the plot is that outside the soul system, a Sons of Horus strike cruiser appears, uh, translates out of the warp. The Imperial Fists show up and immediately just fuck this thing up. And, you know, they kill the entire crew, but they come to this section of the ship that is like completely sealed off. All the blast doors closed, all of this stuff. They cut through... And what they find is this Remembrancer, who is a very famous guy named Solomon Voss. And they take him, and they take him to um, a fortress on Titan, uh, which is one of the moons of Saturn. And Rogel Dorn personally goes out there to interrogate this guy, again, because he's a rather famous Remembrancer. And he doesn't go alone, he actually brings our old friend Yachtin Cruz. Um, who has become, uh, I believe they're called like the Knights Errant is what they'll end up being called. Um, basically, he's a, a hand of the Sigilite. And he's kind of serving as a bit of a naysmith for Rogel Dorn. And they have these conversations and Voss tells his story. And he talks about being um, in the audience chamber on the Vengeful Spirit when Horus kills all those Remembrancers and Iterators and all this stuff. And what he says is that all of them get killed except for him. And his job is to take a message back to Terra. And the idea of this message functionally is everything you've been fighting for and claiming to be billed is a lie. Um, and this is the way of the future that we're going to tear. We're going to tear down these lies and the back and forth really comes from Cruz and Rogel Dorn, where Dorn is like trying to hang on to, you know, like we stand for truth and, you know, we're the light in the darkness for humanity and all of this stuff. And Yacht and Cruz is like, things are changing, man. Times are different now. You know, we can't keep the Remembrancers around uh, when we're fighting amongst ourselves. You know, things have got to, got to go a different way. And Rogel Dorn, at the, by the end of the, the book, he kind of comes around and is like, yeah, you know, we're going to have... He, he ends up executing uh, Solomon Voss and orders all his writings to be burned. And you really see, okay, we've stepped out of this kind of Age of Enlightenment, allegedly. Uh, but the real question is, you know, it, it's kind of painted like for Dorn that he's stepping out of this age of enlightenment into this age of darkness. But the real question comes from, was there ever an age of enlightenment? And, you know, even if we point back to the, the last story there where the Imperium's argument is you will be loyal because we're the Imperium. I would argue, no, I don't think there ever was an age of enlightenment. I think that that was a pretty poorly held together sheen on I mean, let's let's look at what, regardless of how you feel about the Imperium, it is tyrannical. 
Well, and I think that's an important point to make about Voss's whole spiel to Rogel Dorn is it's not necessarily that he wants to make arguments to support the war master. What he's saying is the remembrancers should remain and should publish the truth, right? No more of this propaganda, no more imperial truth. We tell people exactly how things have been going. That's what I'm writing down. And Rogel Dorn says, that's too dangerous. If we post this on Terra and people decide, hey, that's what's really happening out there, I'm for Horus. We can't allow that. We have to keep that fake sheen of the imperial truth going or else we're going to lose the war. And that's the thing that sways him to finally just say, nope, Voss has to go. It's not even a, like, I fall into chaos and I'm going to worship. His whole thing is, I just want to publish the truth. And Dorn says, too dangerous. Yeah, and that that's kind of, uh, you know, what I'm getting at here is that this idea of truth and this, this society that was supposedly the shining city on the hill really never was. Yeah, and I think you see that with the Dark Angels books. Remember when the the Imperium finally takes over Caliban, what's what do they do? They start chopping down the forests and killing the monsters and turning it into just another, you know, high-rise apartment complex block and and nothing of what the old planet was remained, even though they're coming to, to there with this enlightenment and unity and and everything else. Pretty much everybody who accepts the Imperial truth suffers or not the Imperial Truth, but the, the Imperium, they just suffer be, be, uh, under this grinding weight of, of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And even if the Emperor doesn't intend that, this is exactly what's happening. So it kind of goes back to the other question is, is the Emperor a good guy or not? Because he sure acts like a villain very frequently. Well, and again, we talk, we've talked about this before, but what the Emperor is out for is capital H humanity. He is, which doesn't include humans ironically enough he's out for the idea of humanity and you could see where that is a those two things do not end up going together it is unification of the human race at any cost individual individuality be damned we're all going to be on the same team come hell or high water and it just it doesn't end well and that's where I kind of want to praise this book is through these first four stories, especially I think we do get the theme of this is the age of darkness. You know, this, there's, there's no more shining city. There's no more Imperial truth. There's no more, you know, we're the good guys. It is very much like, Hey, we're stepping into a new age here. And that, is showing kind of pulling back the curtain on the old age and showing, Hey, like a lot of blood went into the lie that you were living. Voss even makes a line about that during the execution where he says, I think the reason Horus sent me here was so that you would look me in the eyes and kill me and know that this thing that has been going on is over. This is a whole different Mm -hmm. thing now. Yeah, I would say this this story in particular is probably my favorite of this entire anthology. Yeah, I really liked it a lot too. Uh, should we move on to the next one? I think it's uh, me. We're going to be talking about Rebirth. Um, this one's also a pretty short one. Um, it follows Menes Calliston, who is a captain of the Thousand Suns. 
this takes place right after the burning of Prospero. So at least this one's in chronological order, as opposed to a lot of the other stories. Um, he was part of the Thousand Suns fleets that were ordered away from Prospero before the, the Space Wolf showed up. And um, it's established that his crew have a bunch of Corvidae guys, and they have foreseen that something terrible has happened and they need to return. Um, so they finally make it back to Prospero, where they're attacked and captured. And uh, basically, it's kind of told in this weird flashback interrogation sort of thing where he's in chains and trying to remember who he is. He's still like shaking off the grogginess and having these flashbacks of landing on the planet and being attacked. Um, it's heavily like implied that the person interrogating him is a space wolf. And uh, Calliston is just really confused at the, what's happening because he missed the whole burning of Prospero arc. So he's like, why are you here? And why is everything in ruins? We kind of knew something was coming, but we didn't rec realize it was going to be this. Um, but as he continues to talk, he realizes that it's not a space wolf interrogating him. It's a world eater. It's Karn. Which is this huge twist reveal um, about halfway through the book. So then they start having this back and forth um, as to, you know, why they're there and what they're looking for. Um, but the long and the short of it is Calliston's able to break free. He kind of regains his powers and is able to subdue Karn momentarily and escape. Um, he doesn't escape. Yeah, it's, our, it's Arvita that escapes. Yeah, Arvita Here's, escapes. When, when yeah. the Thousand Callistan Suns... gets absolutely punked by Karn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not even close. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's... Like I said, this book is... Uh, this story in particular is kind of all over the place with the flashbacks well, and stuff. Yeah. So Arvita is the one who escapes. I'm trying to... Oh, that's what it was. Okay. All right. Back up a few paces there. So Calliston, realizing it's Karn and realizing how far the Butcher's Nails have gone offers to use his psychic abilities to try to uh, basically cure him, try to remove the butcher's nails. Uh, and Karn ends up killing him, like beats him to death, right? And then it cuts to Arvida, who ends up killing a bunch of world eaters and stealing a ship and escaping. That's what it was. No, he doesn't escape the planet. He gets stranded there. All right, maybe I have to reread this. <laughs> you might need to. So... Basically, um, Karn tries to convince Callistan that they are there looking for the Iron Wolf, which was a pendant that hang, hung from Horus's armor, and that's how Magnus was contacting Horus when Horus was off having his vision quest. But it comes to find out the World Eaters are actually there looking for some kind of medical technology or something that will restore their minds from the Butcher's Nails. Arvida gets separated after the other thousand sons are captured and he doesn't show up again until the white scars come to Prospero. The white scars end up recovering him there. And then he gets inducted into the Knights Errant, I believe at some point. Th this one so, was kind of a dud for me. It well. doesn't move the needle is the problem. Yeah. yeah. I, I will say I did. A lot of this was a bit of a drag. I think I listened to this probably three times over the last month and, Clearly, it didn't sink in. 
if that yeah, sorry to steal your thunder. No, you're there. good. Hey, I'd rather get it right. So that's on me for not. Uh, well, that says notes. something though about <laughs> the story. If you can listen to it three times and you still can't really tell us that much about it, it's because it's just not interesting. Yeah. It, is is there a theme we're supposed to pick up from this story? No, I think it's specifically to introduce Arvita and why he's on Prospero when the White Scars show up. Because Chris Wright is the author of this story as well as the White Scars books when they show up. Manipul, do you think there's a theme that we're supposed to be taking away that the rest of us are just missing? Um, no, I'd agree with what Fruit said there. I think it's to um, uh, introduce this character. I will say I like the character interactions between Karn and Calliston. Because you do get this sense that, that Karn is at the end of his rope. And this is the story that kind of pushes him over the edge. Because Calliston's, one of Calliston's last thoughts is, you know, uh, this is the last remnant of the man. From this point forward, he is the monster. Uh, one little fun bit of trivia that I do know is this is the story everyone points to when they make the claim that the Blood Ravens from the Dawn of War series are Thousand Sons loyalists. Because the final line, one of the last lines in the book is, Arvida says knowledge is power when he foresees him making it off the planet, which is the Blood Ravens motto. I didn't catch that. The one that I usually reference is in the Thousand Sons book when Prospero is burning, um, it's either Magnus or Araman is having some kind of vision, vision, and there's a reference to a raven of blood. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people have referenced that kind of stuff for this. That's where that comes from. Um, so moving right along, I think we're on the face of treachery. Yep, I've got that one. Uh, this one had some nice uh, uh, fleet actions, and you see it from this a lot of it from the standpoint of a, of all things, a um, world eaters battle barge. And the character here, I, I kind of liked was this uh, commander, Nye Vash Delarax, who is kind of a badass. Um, he screams and yells at people. And I love the part where it, it talks about him. He's receiving a message on a picked screen and he almost push, puts his finger through it. And even though it's still sparking, it's able to deliver the message, whatever he's wanting, because he's full of, so full of rage all the time. And you get a sense when he, he's fantasizing about catching the remnants of the Raven Guard that have escaped the Dropside Massacre, and he's going to find the last of them and kill them. And you have all these broadcasts coming across from Angron about how he's going to, you know, encircle the Raven Guard, he's gonna destroy the last of them, and we're going to win finally. And you just get all this rage pouring off of these these world eaters which was pretty good but on the ship on on his battle barge there is a envoy from horus and the envoy keeps telling him you know follow your orders maintain discipline do what you're told but he keeps getting all these conflicting orders first he says go here no go there no do this no do that and he's like no i'm tired of listening to this and he keeps um you know pushing against this and he always ends up out of place. He's not where he's supposed to be. Well, then you switch gears to this guy, Bran and Bran is the commander of a, a Raven guard vessel. And he's, they missed the, the, the drop site massacre. They, they've come back to figure out what is going on. And all they're hearing are these, these um, 
broadcasts that sound like traps or threats. They've got this this one that's on repeat from an Iron Hands ship that calling for aid, and he's like, "Eh, it could be a trap. Let's not go there. They could be wanting to kill us. It could be somebody else. Who knows?" But they do figure out that on this, it was an Isvan six, where you've got these Raven Guard that have um, gotten away, or is it actually Isvan five? It's, it's Isvan just... five. Isvan six is where the like remnants of the Loyalist fleet was hiding out, and that's why the World Eaters are over there blasting right. them out of the sky. But they're going to make this rescue mission. So they are going to go and get the, the last of the Raven Guard off of Isfan 5. And they do it by sending a some kind of a decoy. And But but again, so it's kind of this this game. Are they, are they, they have this small flotilla of ships. Are they going to get there and rescue the Raven Guard? Are the world leaders going to, finally going to get wise and catch them? What's happening? Well, finally, um, uh, the command, the the uh, let's see, De- Delarax has finally had it. He's going to catch these Raven Guard once and for all. So he's disobeying orders. He puts the pedal to the metal, gets his battle barge flying, and he's going to catch these Raven Guard and blow them out of the sky. He gets there, and the horse's delegate comes and says, "What are you doing? You're not following orders. You need to pull back. Other elements will take care of this. Leave them alone." And he says, "Nope." Uh, and you're dead. So he tells the second in command to, to kill him or get rid of him, whatever. But Delarax feels a muzzle of the gun on the back of his head. He says, well, what's going on? And the delegate says, well, I'm Alfarius. And the guy who he thought was the second in command says, oh, I'm also Alfarius. And then it goes through this whole description of him feeling the muzzle against the side of his head, the bullet or the the bullet entering his his skull and blowing his brains out the other side. And he's just full of rage. Even with his brains leaking out of his skull, all he wants to do is rip and tear, but he can't, he can't move his legs. He can't move his arms. And then you get that quote that I, that I opened uh, my intro with. He says, well, why? And the, and Alfarius says, in times such as these, even the most trusted face can conceal an enemy. So you get the sense of the Alfarius, the Alpha Legion is playing both sides against each other. They want the Raven Guard to survive with their Primarch so that they can c- continue to be a thorn in the side of the of the uh, traitors. And the traitors will have to keep wasting resources to track them down. Now, I kind of like this one. We're introduced to Bran, and another reason that Bran is there is because he's got this army commander with him that is having premonitions. And this, the, you know, both these characters show up later on. Uh, Bran is very hesitant to trust these premonitions because psychers are a big no-no, but it appears that for whatever reason, Bran gives them the benefit of the doubt and they're able to use these premonitions in order to coordinate the extraction of the remaining Raven Guard. So that's how they get off the Istvan and that's good for them, I guess. I do yeah. like this story. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, and kind of going back to the idea that this book's out of place, that whole story with Bran comes later. I don't even think that's in Deliverance Lost, is it? That's a different book. Um, the first Raven Guard book picks up right around here. Mm-hmm. I do think that th- that these two are connected uh, because I think Gav Thorpe writes Deliverance Lost, doesn't he? I think so. So yes, it's just weird that they show the ending before the other two stories are even published or written. No, because in Deliverance Lost, it's them leaving Estevan. 
and heading back to Terra, recovering the stuff that they need to clone more space marines, and then going back to Deliverance. Yeah. So it's it's a it might feel a little jumbled, but I think it works. Should we get on to the next one? Yeah. So we're uh, on Little Horus. So we finally get a story with the Sons of Horus. Yeah. So this one follows Horus Aximand, um, who's one of the Mornival. Uh, you know him from the first three books and beyond. Um, interesting character. Basically, this is detailing what's happening in the aftermath of the Istvan massacres. Horus is or uh, Aximand has been having a lot of like mental issues after what went down on his fan three with Loken and Torgadon being killed. He's starting to get these like dreams and like hallucinations where he's being stalked by somebody that he can't see. He's having these like meetings, like he's sitting, you know, having a conference with Horace and he keeps asking like, who's that in the corner? Why, why is there the sound of breathing? And Horace is like, dude, you need to chill out. <laughs> um, but the main part in the beginning is Aximand meets with uh, Abaddon and is discussing reforming the Mornival uh, since the other two are dead. Um, there's a brief discussion on whether it's even worth doing it, but a Aximand always presses the like the whole point of the Mornival was to provide, you know, level-headed advice to the war master and what better time than now to have it we should discuss filling these positions and they kind of end up settling on a couple of names so before they like officially name them they decide to run i think it's uh grail noctua the sergeant guy through kind of a trial by fire where aximand is going to be sort of taking him under his wing and uh taking him on campaign to a planet called dwell um, this is an Imperial controlled planet that's currently got, um, a bunch of the shattered legions there trying to mount a resistance. Um, uh, is this the first time the shattered legion has been mentioned? I believe so. And their big concern is this iron warriors captain named Shadrach Medusa. Yeah. So basically, yeah. So after the Isfan Easy system, <laughs> yeah. Um, what did I say? You said Iron Warriors. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, so, it's an easy mix-up. <laughs> so basically, after Isvan, there's been these like elements of the leftovers of the Loyalist Legions that have been banded together, and they've been pretty effectively countering the War Master's plans in the sector. Um, and they finally narrowed it down to this Iron Hands guy, Shadrach Medusin, is the leader, and they've come across intel i believe that's what it was they came across intel that said he was on dwell and so they're leading the spearhead strike to try and take him out and bring the planet to compliance um so not too much there they go in they land they do the battle i thought it was really cool that they uh came up with this like really unique solar auxilia unit um, basically there are a bunch of humans in these almost like pseudo terminator armor. They have these like almost like void shields that are able to just soak fire and not take any damage. Um, but they end up finding out that they have zero protection in close quarters combat, which, you know, the sons of Horus, that's their specialty. So they rip them to pieces pretty quickly. 
Um, but yeah, just a cool design. A little shout out to them. I can't remember what they're called though, off the top of my head. Um, but either way, they make it into uh, their main objective, and they come across a lone uh, Iron Hands captain. Bion Henrikos. Henrikos, yes. Uh, so him and um, Aximan fight it out, and Henrikos almost kills Aximan, but is saved at the last minute by one of his guys stepping in and taking the hit. Um yeah, but Henrikos makes him pay for it. Yeah. And so he ends up putting him down, and as he's dying, he basically reveals that they thought the War Master was going to come here to deal with Medusa himself, and so they'd set a trap here for him. And before Axeman can really realize it, he hears breathing again, thinking that it's part of the hallucinations, but it's revealed that... Uh, this chamber that had a bunch of covered statues were actually Astartes that had painted their armor to look like stone. And they end up revealing that it's this huge, like white scars kill team. And they all just like descend on the sons of Horus and it becomes this crazy melee. Um, Aximand is specifically paired up against, I think it's Hibukan. Hibukan. Yeah. yeah. And they have this uh, epic duel. Hibukan ends up, uh, Aximand ends up breaking Hibukan's sword, but then Hibukan grabs Henrikos's blade and uses it to smash Aximand's helmet and take his face off. And as he kind of like goes out, but the Sons of Horus end up winning the fight. And as Aximand's taken back and he's recovering, it's revealed that the person that's been stalking him in his dreams is Loken. Um... And so, you know, it's kind of this idea that it's this manifestation of his guilt that he felt bad that the other Mornival members died on his van. But it also kind of, for him, he rationalizes it as relief because it's clearly a dream because Loken is definitely dead. <laughs> Absolutely. Loken is dead. I don't even want to talk about that because that was the worst narrative decision that they made. Absolutely. <laughs> Bar none. <laughs> yeah but this so this came out this was written around the same time as prospero burns unless i'm mistaken so i think dan abnett was just really in a i'm gonna subterfuge and mind games and all of this stuff and that was just like the the mode he was in at the time because it very much smacked just like prospero burns and go back because... to our episode on that because I don't think he's good at this. <laughs> we know you don't like Dan Abner. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when he does this thing with this subterfuge type, you know, Manchurian candidate it feels mind like, games thing, he just doesn't do it well. It feels like Legion a little bit. Yeah, but Legion was done better, even yeah. by him. <laughs> yeah, but I even remember discussing it where we had some issues with that story. It's very flashy and it's a lot of fun. The first read through, but if you have to go back and read it again, you kind of go, wait, why did that happen? I don't know. Overall, it was an interesting story. I do feel that it was kind of like, um, kind of like rebirth where it, it doesn't really feel like anything important happened. Uh, I guess this story is the one that establishes Medusin as being a threat to Horus and the Shattered Legions being a thing, but... 
right. don't and even I th- really go into that all that much. I think Axeman dealing with this underlying guilt is a main mainstay of his character from here on out. Yeah. So and it's the first first we've seen of the Mournival, well, Abaddon and Axeman since Galaxy and Flames, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta be honest though, I think having the white scars be the ones who make that trap takes away a lot from the story. Um, I think it should have been like the Raven Guard because it would have kept in this these shattered legions are still a threat. The White Scars are not a shattered legion. Um, and we haven't seen the the White Scars up until now have well, other than they were in one of the Dark Angels books, but up until now we haven't really seen them. We haven't really seen them in them. action. Right. Yeah. And I I do like how they're written when you're there, but I do agree that it should have been Salamanders or Raven Guard. Yeah, no because, issues with how they're written. Right, yeah. It's the overarching implications on the story that I, I take issue with on that. And then, it I gotta be honest, it felt like this story was kind of just thrown in. Of They were like, hey, uh, these characters are really popular, we probably need to go back to them. Do something. Yeah, which every time the Sons of Horus pop up in the books, that kind of feels like that's the vibe where it's like, oh man, we haven't talked about the main antagonists for a while. Let's let's check in with them real quick. <laughs> Manipul, any thoughts? Uh, nope. Nope, I think you guys covered it. Good job. All right. Well, uh, Warwick, you want to take us into the Iron Within? Yeah, Iron Within is a pretty quick and easy story. Basically, some uh, a warsmith from the Iron Warriors and a Sons of Horus envoy get sent to a planet named Lesser Damantine to reassign the acting warsmith there, Barabbas Dantioch. And Dantioch, you know, entertains this notion and he is, you know, one of these individuals throughout the Imperium who has been receiving kind of mixed reports, and he's not entirely sure what to make of any of it. Well, as this kind of um, exchange goes on, Dantioch is, I should talk a little bit about him. He's this very ancient looking Astartes. And it's basically because in a previous campaign, he was exposed to some kind of entropic field deployed by a Xenos race called the Harud. And it caused him to unnaturally age, you know, several decades, or I guess centuries, into the future. And now he's just this ancient, decrepit, coughing, wheezing old man in power armor. And he's got this um, steel mask or iron mask on his face that looks like the, uh, the Iron Warrior's symbol. But he's kind of got this, I guess poor reputation amongst the Legion because he used to be favored by Perturabo, their Primarch, but since he, I guess he talked back to the Primarch or told Perturabo he's wrong about something, and Perturabo just sent him to this backwater backwater garrison to live out the rest of his days. You know, he's this feeble old man. He's not useful as a space marine anymore. So Dantioch sets up shop on Lesser Damantine, which is kind of this planetoid honeycombed with caverns and he constructs this what i think is just this awesome fortress out of this giant stalactite in the ceiling of one of these giant caverns and he's made it this you know impregnable fortress and it's kind of this 
linchpin of the system, basically, and they can, the Iron Warriors can respond to anywhere from there. I can respond to any crisis in the system from this location. So it can't rightly be ignored. And the War Master wants this garrison for his march on Terra. So Dantioch entertains this envoy, but, you know, before they can get an answer, um, Dantioch kind of loses his cool and gets this dreadnought that's been hiding in the back wall to come out and kill the honor guard and the tech marine, or not tech marine, the uh, tech priest. He picks up a tech priest with his dreadnought claw and twists his head off. It's very cinematic and very gross. Fucking brutal. And Dantioch basically tells Warsmith Krendel and the uh, Sons of Horus uh, envoy to, you know, go back to their ships and fuck off. And, you know, they take their ship and they go, or they take their Stormbird and they go back to their fleet and order the invasion. Well, the only way onto this planetoid is with a Stormbird insertion because the atmosphere is so hostile and, you know, it's impossible to navigate. Well, Dantioch just collapses the entrance to their tunnel. And as these Stormbirds are flying through the atmosphere uh, and through all these clouds, they just plow into this now collapsed tunnel because they didn't know. So from that point forward, the war fleet deploys all of their Titan garrison and all of their remaining assets to map out the tunnels and get to the this big fortress called the Chardonnay, where Dantioch is held up. In the meantime, one of the other envoys that was there who said he was an envoy from inside the system turns out to be an envoy from Ultramar. He is a uh, centurion from the Ultramarines. He's Nicodemus, or Nic yeah, Nicodemus. And, you know, he's an honor guard to Gilliman himself. So he should be written as a suzerain, but whatever. It's, I, there's the ambiguity in the, the whatever. But um, basically, Gilman got to Dantioch first, saying, you know, Horus has betrayed us, and, you know, you've got your duty to the Imperium, and basically convinces Dantioch, um, you know, hear out what uh, the I other Iron Warriors and the Sons of Horus have to say, but understand that this is, you know, the duty to the Imperium. And so Dantioch kind of has this back and forth in his head of, you know, maybe the Iron Warriors need to be reminded of what loyalty really is. And so that's his stance throughout the story. So Gilliman basically sends orders of hold that fleet there as long as you can to buy myself and the Emperor time to prepare against Horus. And so Dantioch ends up stalling this war fleet for a year and a day at the Chardonnay. And finally, you know, they're they're fighting through these corridors, they're getting pushed back, the the Chardonnay is eventually being invaded, and at the very end of it, this uh, Imperator Titan that had gotten lost in the, the caverns and tunnels of the planetoid finally shows up and just starts beating the shit out of the Chardonnay, and Dantioch says, well, that's it, time to abandon ship, and they've got a teleportarium inside that is able to teleport them to a homer homing beacon that they had planted on the original envoys stormbird so they're able to teleport to the iron warriors capital ship that is now largely ungarrisoned because they're all on the planet fighting and then as they teleport 
Dantioch triggers a bunch of explosive charges in the top of the Shardenhold, dropping this giant stalactite fortress on top of the Imperator Titan. And so that's more or less how the defense goes. And then from there, the Iron Warriors are basically able to walk through the ship uncontested because there are no, there are very few other Astartes, and the ratings and ship crew are not going to interrupt what Astartes are doing. They're able to seize the seize the bridge from what few Astartes are there, and there are a couple of Sons of Horus, there are a couple of Iron Warriors. They basically steal the ship and they make for Ultramar because Gilliman has more use of a you know a few more troops. So a few Iron Warriors do I think like five Iron Warriors and Nicodemus get off. Uh, get off the planet onto the ship and make it to Ultramore. And that's more or less the story. I'm not, I don't think there's like a huge takeaway. This is another story that doesn't really move the needle. Basically, Dantioch is able to stall this fleet and buy time for the rest of the galaxy. You know, it, it ties up a lot of resources from the Iron Warriors and the Sons of Horus on Lesser Dam and Time. And then it does introduce Barabbas Dantioch, who is a kind of one of the maybe medium kind of bigger players in Imperium Secundus when we get to those stories. But other than that, it uh, this again, this is another story that doesn't really move the needle. This is just a holding action, basically. Uh, and that's kind of all my takeaway. I think it's kind of cool. I like, uh, I like some of the stuff that Dantioch does. He's this very, very thorough planner. He's had, uh, I think, a century or so to build this fortress and outfit it. So he's got everything planned out exactly the way he wants it. I, I like that it shows just how dangerous one Astartes can be, you know, just um, given enough time and resources, just what they can accomplish. So yeah, he's, I like that he was able to plan this out and have every, everything kind of went the way that he thought it was going to be. I, I actually don't like it for that. Um, I think that this, uh, story has some really bad main character syndrome going on because it talks about how it's like he's got like 30 iron warriors and he's taking on a grand company of iron of enemy iron warriors an entire titan legio and all of this stuff and he just lols his way into stealing their ship and running off and it's like you guys remember there was a Marvel movie that came out recently and I don't even remember which one because they're all the same, but the entire plot just boiled down to the, uh, the antagonist was just an idiot. And that's what this entire story is. The only reason this happens is because the war Smith that is opposing Dantioch is an idiot. And to be frank, it's kind of out of character for iron warriors. Um, you know, you're going to show one of them is the super strategic planner, all the, they're all supposed to be like that. Um, so I, I, I just don't think it works. You know, if it had been like a world leadership, yeah, absolutely. They would have committed absolutely everything, but to have an iron warriors grand company, that's like, we're going to leave our ships completely unguarded. And then it's also really convenient that the sons of Horus who are guarding the bridge stand there politely and wait for, uh, Nicodemus to cross with his storm shield and stab them. It was very nice of them to do. Um, so I got, I, I gotta be honest. I, I know Warwick, you're rolling your eyes at me, but I got a lot of problems with this story. I'm not even saying it's a perfect story. I like Dantioch. That is what I like about the story. I could give a shit about Idris Kendall. 
I, I just I, I think my issue with it is they try to set him up to be this super awesome dude and it's not done very well. It just a lot of his success is entirely chalked up to his opponent's incompetence. Yeah, well, and the Iron Warriors always have that sort of role in a lot of these narratives. It's kind of like we talked about in Forgotten Sons. You mentioned, how did this unarmed, unarmored salamander kill a armed, armored Iron Warrior? Well, it's because he was the, the nameless bad guy and the narrative required him to die. Yeah, well, and Iron Warriors definitely have that you know, in 40K and in 30K where they're just kind of the nameless ones. But this is a loyalist iron warrior. You can't make one of them a genius and then one of them a moron when they come from the same gene stock like that. One of the characters in this book is referred to as an iron palatine. What the hell is that? I don't really know what that was. I thought that that was supposed to be like a Terminator type thing, but, you know... It, it seems like it's a bit more than that. It's like almost a semi-dreadnought. I don't know. It, this story is somewhat inconsistent. I'll give you that. Mm. Um, I think as far as a siege goes and a garrison holding out against a superior foe, this is fine for me. Dantioch had the home field advantage. That's kind of my excuse for any of this. Um, and Idris, Ken- Idris Kendall is in a hurry, more or less, so he overcommits immediately. Probably not a great, uh, not a great reasoning for why any of this plays out the way it does. But again, I like Dantioch. I think he's a cool character. We do see him later. I'm not happy with how Dantioch's story ends. I do like how he's introduced. Yeah. Yeah, I will say at least in this short story book, this one was probably the fastest read for me, and it did stick pretty well. It's narratively it may not be the best well written but the actual like flow to it works really well it is a fun read yeah just the the biggest defender part of this for me was when they're on the bridge and the sons of horus are just standing in a line shooting at that ultramarine with a storm shield and he's just slowly walking across stops stabs them and they just politely wait there to be stabbed (laughs) yeah uh, so I think Do, we just got one left, right? Yes, yeah, Savage Weapons. Take it away, Brandon. All right. Well, I spent a bunch of time complaining about the Iron Within. Now we're back to my boys, the First Legion. And I'm going to summarize this entire story with my biggest critique of this is I, I love this story. Super cool. Just like you like the last one, Warwick. This shouldn't even be a story. I, I got to be quite honest. Like, why was this written out to be an entire short story? Because it comes down to one sentence. Corswain stabbed Conrad Kurz. That's the entire story. You know, there's some back and forth banter with, uh, basically what it is, is um, we go to the, the Dark Angels who are in the Thramus sector. Um, we haven't really heard from them since, uh, since Fallen Angels. Uh, but basically what happens to them is after they they kind of reconsolidate their fleet and they want to move back towards Terra, but the night Lords are holding them up in this Thramus sector for years to what becomes the Thramus crusade. And I'm not sure what we're going to get there, but eventually the Thramus crusade basically just becomes who's better at war crimes. It's the dark angels, (laughs) but uh, 
there's a contact that comes from Conrad Curtis to the lion that says, meet me on this planet. We're going to talk. And the lion says, this is probably a trap, but we haven't been able to find him at this point. And so he takes the ninth order of the dark angels, um, which is captain, uh, Alio. I can't remember if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, along with his paladin, Corswain. Um, those of you who are familiar with the lore realize that Corswain is the Giga Chad of the Dark Angels. So uh, I was really excited to see him finally get introduced in uh, in the books. But uh, they go there. They go down to this planet. They realize the Night Lords are like building this fortress there to be a big thing. Um, Kurz and the Lion walk off. Uh, together in their kind of negotiation and they leave uh, Alio and Corswain with Sevatar and Sheng and this Captain Alio is really upset because Sevatar basically cut his face off last time they uh, they fought and Sevatar is just kind of sitting there all smug and he's like next time I'll be sure to finish the job <laughs> and uh, so they're just kind of like exchanging banter back and forth and then Conrad and Lion walk back over and Conrad is basically like you, you know, he starts to just basically, you know, standard issue Conrad curse talk shit. And the lion looks at him and says, brother, I am very sorry. And he says, for what? And before he even finishes the sentence, the lion has literally run him through with the lion's sword. And he goes, this was a really dishonorable blow. <laughs> And so they start fighting each other and then Sevatar and Shang ghost out on Alias and Corswain and they're trying to find him. And Corswain's like, we've got to get to the lion to help him. And, and Alios is saying, no, we've, we've got plenty going on here with Sevatar. Um, so, you know, don't do that. But then Corswain's like, you need to order the drop pot assault already. He's like, I already did, but they're going to, it takes them seven minutes to get from orbit to here. So seven minutes is a long time in a, in a fight that is a very long time. So, uh, they end up mixing it up with, uh, I, I believe Corswain crosses blades with Sevatar for, um, a couple of, a couple of blows. But what's happened is Conrad has rather than continue to duel, um, the lion, he's just basically jumped on him and starts, uh, choking starts choking him and that that's kind of the dynamic between these two is one of them fights one one group fights like knights with honor and the other one fights like hive scum which is what they are um and you can see how that works to their advantage very much so and how the dark angels kind of have to change tactics in a, in a hurry so corswain takes off to try and save the lion um who's getting choked out by by curs and he's like, I, I think I'm faster than Sevatar. He's not going to be able to catch me before I get to the Primarchs. What he doesn't realize is Sevatar doesn't try to catch him. Sevatar turns back and they gang up on Captain Alios and kill him. Uh, but in doing so, they take out that captain. But Corswain is able to reach Kurz and the Lion. And he shoves that blade directly through Conrad's spine. And that causes Conrad to have a pretty bad day. The 
picks up Corswain, beats the living tar out of him, throws him aside, but then has to retreat uh, because the Dark Angel's drop pods are arriving. And there's this kind of funny part uh, at the end there where they're, they're, the sergeant from the Ninth Order is pulling Corswain out. And they're like, where's his sword? And Corswain's like, it's in Kurz's back. <laughs> and that's kind of where, I like, where it all ends. <laughs> I like when both armies are retreating and it's, it says something like both Primarchs are reduced to brothers screaming obscenities at one another. Yeah. <laughs> and if you've ever been mad at one of your brothers and somebody's pulling you apart, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a fun story, but the entire thing is summed up by Corswain stabs Conrad. And that's all you really need to know, take away from that. Now, is this the injury that puts Kurz in a coma? I don't know that he goes into a coma. I do know he's slower because of it. Well, there's there's a story later on where um, Sevatar is basically running the Legion because... Kurz is in a coma. This might be it. Yeah. I guess we'll figure that out later on down the line. Yeah. It was overall a pretty good story. I'll admit this one was a lot like Rebirth. I don't know if it's because it's at the very end of the book and I'd already been having a lot of trouble getting through this one, but this one didn't really stick with me a lot. Uh, That's even... because there's just not a lot of content yeah. to it. You know, some of the, the back and forth is, is, is interesting. And like Savitar talks about why his gauntlets are red. Um, but to be quite frank, you, you don't really have any exposure to Savitar before this. So like, we know that he's a really cool character, but your average reader wouldn't know that. So they're like, this is just some dude. And then to be frank, we don't have any exposure to Corswain yet either. I mean, obviously not by the end of it, we know that Corswain's a freaking Chad who can stab Primarchs and live. So my question about this this entire book set, Age of Darkness as a whole, I know, like, in our group chat, I text out that I was having a hard time getting through it, and, you know, you guys came back at me like, yeah, me too. This one was a tough read for all of us in a couple of different places. So my, character, my question is, even if these stories are not good in a way that moves the needle throughout the galaxy... Are these stories better just from the character perspective because of the characters that we meet, we get to see? I think my, my problem with with one, just for example, was the one with the uh, the Forgotten Sons. Um, and I've fallen into this with a few of these stories. Is I'll, I'll encounter a character like Persephia that I, I kind of like, I want to hear more about, but they're then immediately killed. I'm like, oh, okay, and I have to still read the rest of the story without this character that I wanted to hear about. And so that happened a bunch of times with these. And I just kept kind of getting frustrated that I, I don't want to get attached to somebody because they're probably going to die some horrific death. But that happens to most everybody in the 31st millennium. So maybe we're, we're kind of running into that where there's too much grimdark. It's the J.R.R. Martin syndrome. Yeah. Make him love a character and then kill him. I think or, or just kill characters off for no reason. Like, did Persephone need to die in, in Forgotten Sons? Yeah, and, and that's the thing with some of the stuff that happens. It's like, well, I don't know what... Because she could have survived and said, oh, hey, I saw an Iron Warrior. And then he would have run down and had the exact same confrontation. But I think what, what the authors are trying to do, we've seen a little bit of this before, is that you have to put a character in there that you like, have them killed so that there's some stakes. It's like we said with the, with the 
the, with the Martin stories is that, well, don't get attached because once you get attached, it makes you want to read more of, and then you see how they get revenge and that sort of thing. But at some point, I just want to have one character I'm following through these stories that I like and I want to see more about, but we keep having to be reintroduced to new people. And there isn't, like, is there one person in these horse heresy books that you can follow through the eyes of through all of them? There really isn't. And I think that's the big problem that a lot of these books going forward are going to have that the first like 12 books are really strong because they all follow that singular narrative of, you know, basically laying in the groundwork of where the horse heresy is going and it keeps you motivated to go book to book to book because, you know, you read Horace Rising and you're like, all right, let's move into these next ones and see where the story is going. And then you get to books like Age of Darkness where they're like, here's just a bunch of stuff. Right. So is this book is definitely filler, don't you guys think? I mean, we've got, like I said, we're introduced to a couple of characters that we do see later on. But as Manipal said, we're not going to be following a lot of them till to the end, right? I mean, at some point, like... We're going to lose, I think the next time Dantioch shows up is, I don't remember, Empire. I think that's the one he dies in. So we don't get a lot of Dantioch. Um, as Brandon said, we haven't gotten any Corswain yet, and I'm not sure how relevant he is. Like, even in the, the next couple of Dark Angel stories, he doesn't show up that much. Yeah, and I mean, kind of jumping ahead, something that a lot of people have been talking about with the Siege of Terra books is it feels like there's a this sort of problem where they introduced so many characters and storylines that now that they're trying to wrap up the series, they're having to figure out how to make them all converge on Terra and come to a conclusion. And it's stuff like this that's causing a lot of those problems. Right. And you can't have any character that is too much of an individual live past the Siege of Terra because from that point on, you start to get into the kind of the totalitarian, well, more totalitarianism and like the, the kind of social regression that we see in 40 K. So it's really hard to keep a developed character around past that point. And to be fair with you, short stories is it's for some of these, I wouldn't have expected a full novel about them. So like Goleman's development of the book he's writing, I don't need to see a whole book about that if we have some stories that introduce a character that's going to show up in the next, uh, the next book we're going to read, uh, uh, that's fine. Um, I did like to see some of the aftermath of his fan four, his fan five, that, you know, that stuff is fine. I guess, um, like you said, it is, it is kind of a Malou, but that's, I guess that's when you go into a book of short stories, what else are you going to get? I will say that there were a few novels that were, or books that were set in the Warhammer universe, the old, the old world, where it started off as a series of short stories, but then as you get to the end of the book, you realize they've all been connected the whole time, and there's a big payoff in the last few chapters. Um, when Gotrick and Felix started off, those are just individual stories, but then you get a sense like, oh, this is part of a larger narrative. And I know these are part of a larger narrative, but each of these stories had very little to do with each other. So if there had been some kind of payoff in the last story where this all these characters came together at the end, maybe that would have been a little, would have drawn me in a little bit more because otherwise I was kind of bouncing back and forth between the stories. I was reading and say, well, I'll try this one. I'll try that one. 
And I didn't read them in order even. I was going to say something I noticed with these is all of these stories had some type of like weird twist thrown in at like the midpoint. I almost wonder if that's why they were all put together. Like rules of engagement, it's, you know, Remus fighting a bunch of traitors and then all of a sudden, you know, oh, it wasn't traitors. It was a simulation. You know, liars do. It's like, oh, this thing's happening on a planet. Uh, it was actually just an Alpha Legion agent. Rebirth, it's, uh, he's getting interrogated by Space Wolf. Uh, it's just Karn. It's, it, it almost feels like they were just like, all right, let's take all the Shyamalan twist books and short stories and put them all into one. Yeah, I definitely felt like that was an overarching theme of the book in general. Like, even in Iron Within, they're like, surprise, Dreadnought, you know, um, stuff like that. Which I thought was really lame. I should have said that. Um, they paint a Dreadnought black, and when it comes out of this black wall that it's standing next to, none of the super enhanced space marines notice the smell of wet paint or the fact that there is a Dreadnought standing there. Yeah, well, and yeah. It, it felt like that was put in there again because they were like, oh, all these stories have to have some kind of twist. And yeah. he was like, uh, there's well, a hidden dreadnought, a I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, because it's like to see a dreadnought in a space marine fortress would not be out of place. Yeah. Yeah, well, I know me and Brandon talked about this with little Horace. The whole, like, white scars painted as statues, that, that always struck me as a little weird because, you know, they had cowls over them. They weren't painted. Oh, they were, they were spooky ghosts. Yeah, spooky, yeah, Halloween spooky ghosts. ghosts. But it's still one of those things where, like, all the other books, they'd, like, go into this whole thing of, like, Auspex scanners and, like, showing IFF markers. Like, none of that got flagged. The White Scars have some secret, you know, jammer technology that they've never talked about. I don't know. But, yeah, the statue thing is was weird in both of those stories. Yeah, well, and see, that's the thing. I, I, I think what I can kind of point to is my overall gripe. Because of the overarching theme of this book was everything has a twist. This book is just, sh every story is just shot through with contrivance. And look, there's good there's ways you can do good twists and stuff like that. I just don't think we saw most of them here. Yeah, and I wonder if with some of these stories, they're, they're given like I've said before, they're, they're given a um, list of things that the GW wants. Okay. We want, we need 10 stories about the aftermath of the Isvan campaign. And each one needs to have a mystery type twist in it with a character that can show up in another story. So guys take it away. And then you see these artists just sit down and bang out a story. Um, although these are all a lot of very good authors. I think I, um, to get an Aaron Dembski about, this is pretty early, uh, ADB, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, this is just post first heretic. Right. Um, which is one of the things, again, I was kind of surprised with it because I was like, there's not a lot happening here. And I was expecting a lot more from, from him. That being said, what you do get, it's all written. Well, I don't think there's any complaints on like, I mean, the, it's just the plot points aren't executed. Well, I guess. But, like, their language is good. I don't really have a problem with the prose for the most part. I, you can tell these each of these guys is definitely talented. But, yeah, it does feel very formulaic. And it kind of feels like, dare I say, almost a little bit uninspired at points. It was like, oh, yeah, I do have this bullet point that I'm required to hit. Let me just figure out how to throw that in. It 
kind of felt modern Hollywood, if we're being honest. You know, and they were cranking these books out pretty fast because not only are they doing these Age of Darkness books, but they're also doing a bunch of uh, old world stuff. They're doing 40K. Uh, they were doing um, you know mul- multiple series of stuff like Gotrek and Felix was big at this time. And so I think they're these guys are pretty busy cranking books out. I was hard. I remember it was hard for me to keep up with buying them all. Yeah. Well, and I do wonder if, you know, some of that, maybe they should have slowed that pace down to get a little more quality. Cause uh, most of these guys are definitely capable of quality. Uh, I do think that I know Martin and I have talked about in the past that uh, a lot of these books do feel rushed. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And maybe if they had slowed down, maybe given the author another six months or so, let the editors kind of fine tune it we would have gotten a little better product here and there. But to be fair, I mean, they have been on this plan for the, the Horus Heresy for, it's going to be a, a 20 year plan to get all these books out, which is pretty impressive um, to get all this amount of work done. Plus all the different games that have been released at the same time. If you look at it as purely this whole, kind of a marketing ploy, they had a plan and, and this has all been, you know, been, been played out during this whole time. So that piece of it's kind of impressive how much they've accomplished. Yeah, it, it is interesting to look at it as a whole, especially, you know, you know, like you said, as a long beard, looking back on, you know, 10, 20 years of lore and books and just seeing where it's gone and still keeping momentum is really cool. But it is also that thing of like, all right, well, 54 books, they're not all going to be great. And that's fine. It just uh means that there's going to be a couple of these podcast episodes that'll be a little tough to get ready for. Speaking of duds, uh, our next book is going to be The Outcast Dead, which I am not looking forward to. Because I do not care for the book one bit. Oh no. Well, we will still get through it anyway, but uh, we're getting pretty long in the tooth here. Uh, Warwick, you want to plug some socials and then we'll get out of here? Yeah, why don't you guys go ahead and shoot us an email at legioncast18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. Don't forget to give this podcast a rating on whatever platform you're on and share it to your buddies. And go ahead and look us up on the X app at legioncast, a horror heresy podcast. And we are looking forward to hearing from you guys. Uh, Manipul and Paul, always a pleasure to have you guys on. Um we will look forward eagerly to the next hobby roundtable, and then whenever you guys rejoin us for another book. Yeah, I even though these short stories are sometimes a little bit rough, I do like having the whole full panel on, so that was fun. Yeah, I, I like having you guys here too. Yeah, it's always fun. We'll see you in the next one. Well, until next time, everybody, we'll see you around. Yep. Thanks for stopping by, everybody, and remember to march in fortune. Mm-hmm.